Hello, everyone. My name is Manar Mohawash Adli. I'm the editor in chief of Mint Press News and the executive director and a host for Behind the Headlines. Um, if you've been watching uh, the media coverage, you probably already know about the latest Israeli attacks on Palestine that has captured the world's attention over this weekend in the past week at the end of uh, Ramadan and on Eid. On Saturday, I'm just going to give a, a brief overview on what has happened over the weekend. Uh, just on Saturday, the Israeli military attacked the Shatti uh, refugee camp in Gaza killing 10 people, including eight children. Over 100 bombs have been dropped each day on Gaza for the last week and are wiping out entire families. Uh, this weekend, Israeli missiles hit a high-rise building housing the headquarters of Al Jazeera and the Associated Press. On Sunday, Israeli airstrikes killed at least 42 people total that day, bringing the death toll to around 200, including 50 children, all of which accounts of war crimes under international law. And what I just described only scratches the surface uh, for what Israel has done to Gaza and Palestine uh, thus far. Now, despite the, 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 the massacres that are taking place at the hands of the Israeli government and military, the U.S. government has stood firmly behind its ally in the Middle East, with President Joe Biden stating that Israel has a right to defend itself uh, when you have thousands of rockets flying into your territory, while his administration has repeatedly blocked any coordinated United Nations center of Israel or even acknowledge that this conflict that this crisis is rooted in Israeli apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and occupation. And just today, the Biden administration approved a $735 million arms deal to Israel right in the middle of this war, just a slap in the face to Palestinian lives. So here to discuss this, um, we have a really all-star panel of guests. I'm very honored to be with every single one of the people that are here with us today. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce Malak Matar. She is, Malak Matar, excuse me. She's an artist from the Gaza Strip who began painting in 2014 as a response to Operation Cast Lead, the Israeli assault on Gaza, where she witnessed Israel's massacres. Today, she is known worldwide for expressionist paintings and abstract designs, and her work has been displayed across Europe, Asia, the US and Latin America. We also have Dan Cohen. He is uh, the Washington DC correspondent for Behind the Headlines, um, a new viewer supported video investigative uh, journalism series. He is a Jewish American journalist. Dan is an expert in Israeli Palestinian con in the conflict. Um, Dan produced and released the documentary Killing Gaza about the 2014 Israeli attack on the densely populated strip. Uh, we also have Miko Peled. He's an author, he's a journalist, a human rights activist from Jerusalem, and the son of an Israeli general. Uh, Miko served in the Israeli military, but now works to liberate Palestine from Israeli occupation and colonialism through his support for BDS. Um, he's also a contributor to Mint Press, so we're very honored to have um, him writing for us. So thank you all for joining us today. Um, Malak, or Malak, I'm so sorry. My sister, by the way, is named Malak. That's why I keep calling you Malak. That's <laughs> me. I still apologize, but you are truly an angel, yeah, yeah Malak. Um, can Thank I start you. with you? Um, since you are on the front lines, you're actually in Gaza right now. You yourself are in Gaza. Could you paint us a picture of what is going on right now there? What is it like for you and for all the young uh, Palestinian women and children and men who are there witnessing this grave human rights crime? 
Thank you so much, Manar, for having me. I mean, while you were introducing me, uh, the, another bombardment happened just like a few kilometers away. Um, the situation here, it's, it's really difficult to paint. Uh, the situation started seven days ago when we heard a bombardment that killed nine children from a Muslim family. And when we knew by this, it's going to be a war. Um, I survived three wars in my life. I'm just 21. I'm surviving or not yet surviving the fourth war. And I could say that this one is more brutal than the ones before. And this comes for different reasons. Although, like, I do not really know the weapons names, but the intensity and also the destruction, uh, the house shaking, no matter how near or close the bombings are, it's like it makes the house shakes all the time and there's another bombardment happening right now so the situation and also uh, the numbers of bombings they fire all at once are dozens and dozens of bombings and that makes it different from uh before so it's really a huge risk i do not really have a lot of hope of surviving i mean my mom's family like my mom's friends she lost her husband her students were killed her family were killed. So it's like families are now getting wiped up. So um, over 200, as you mentioned, over 200 people got killed and a thousand got injured. So I came here two months ago uh, to visit. I have not been able to visit Gaza for four years because of the siege and because of the closing of, of the border all the time. Um, so I got caught like the symptoms of COVID. I, I struggled with it a bit. And I wanted to do my PCR test. And with the terrible conditions of the medicine in Gaza and how it was not having enough capacity for hundreds of people right. getting COVID, I had to take the PCR test in the street because there were no centers, there were no places for PCR, and we were crowding and crowded of people. So the situation before, like before this attack was really miserable. And people were dying both because of poverty and because also because of COVID-19. So now having this attack, it's, it's, it's a crisis that is going on and it's erasing Gaza Strip. So now they are demolishing the main buildings like Ashuruq and Jauhara and also um, Hanadi and all these are like landmarks in the Gaza Strip. They are not only ordinary buildings, they are housing of many and hundreds of families and also media offices and uh, workshops and also like uh, for small businesses. So the targeting of the residential buildings are really uh, erasing Gaza and erasing the most important neighborhood, which is called Arimal. Um, Arimal is, is where it's like the heart of the Gaza Strip and it's been destroyed, including the store that I mentioned, the art store and different stores. Um, and as you said, Ashatik camp where I studied for nine years, it's now getting targeted and it's one of the most dense places in the Gaza Strip, there's no spaces between buildings. It's it's very like, it's cement blocks beside each other. So they bombed three floors building that killed 10 people without any warning. So um, the situation, if it keeps like this, I don't really see, um, I will see that the Gaza will be erased from the map if it continues even a few days from now. Well, it's, you know, it's it's so sad the way you described everything that's happening in Gaza because just a few years ago, the UN estimated that by 2020, Gaza would be uninhabitable because Israel has targeted uh, the, all infrastructure, the roads, the buildings. I mean, we we thought we thought that the last war was unprecedented, but now we're just seeing another unprecedented uh, destruction of Gaza 
on live TV, on live TV, and the United States just approved another arms package to Israel in the middle of Israel's massacre. It's just a huge slap in the face uh, to Palestinians. And you know, you mentioned uh, the weapons. Um, Dan, you were in Gaza uh, in 2014 filming. You spent several months there. You witnessed a lot of the brutality from that conflict, from that war. Can you give us a little bit of insight on what Israel is using to demolish and completely bring uh, Gaza to its to its knees? Um, thanks, Mar. Well, I had the honor to be in Gaza for um, a total of seven months between 2014 and 2017. The the first um, time I was in there were the last 10 days of the 51 day war on Gaza in the summer. Of 2014. Um, and I think in 16, um, I had the honor to meet, to meet Malak, who's who's in my documentary, Killing Gaza, and is re really one of the bright spots and, um, you know, showed, for me, showed so much hope. So it's so it's really amazing to, to be in this, in this uh, chat with her too, this live stream. Um, in terms of the weaponry being used, Israel is using its most sophisticated bombs, laser-guided munitions um, that are supplied by the United States to target exclusively civilian uh, infrastructure. Um, on, I believe, the second night of this assault, uh, the Israeli military attempted to kind of um, basically did a psychological operation where it tweeted out that it was uh, having its ground, it, was, it said ground troops are attacking the Gaza Strip. Um, in order to basically convey that there was an invasion, a ground invasion taking place. Now, um, if we remember back in 2014, particularly in the neighborhood of Shijaiya, which is in the eastern side of Gaza, close to kind of the fence, um, there was very intense um, uh, uh, ground combat between the Israeli military and the um, Palestinian resistance groups, and the Israelis lost. Um, they were really dealt a bloody nose in that in that battle, um, and so as they pulled out, they uh, the Israelis launched major artillery and just flattened huge swaths of the neighborhood, really mass destruction, and killed many people in their homes. Uh, there it was a giant massacre, um, but there was the significance aside from all the civilians who were killed was that the Israeli army really couldn't compete with um, the you know plucky armed resistance groups. Um, face to face, and so when when they s announced that there was this ground invasion, you know, this ground attack taking place in, uh, uh, just a few days ago, the um, it many people in the media, even, even myself, I thought, okay, they're invading, it's happening. But the resistance groups, the Palestinian resistance groups, actually did not fall for it. They didn't, you know, come out of basically the tunnel networks um, as you know, ready ready to engage them. They kind of knew that it was um, an attempt to draw them out, and then the Israeli military launched a massive bombing campaign in the north around uh, Beit Lahia and in the eastern areas. And so this was, um, I mean, I was on the phone with people in Gaza at the time, and I'm sure, you know, Malak can, I'm sure, describe the horrors of, you know, what was what, a one or two hour period of just some of what 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 um, I was told was the most intense bombing anyone has ever experienced there um you know so that's what this is being basically israel played this card it lost 
Um, and now because it's unable to challenge, to really, you know, defeat the armed resistance on the ground, and it didn't manage to defeat them using a trap to draw them out so it could hit them by air, now it's just taking out um, exclusively civilian targets. And as Malak said, um, targeting the heart of Gaza City, Al-Ramal, the, right. the kind of commercial center district, um, art supply stores, you know, civilian towers, the biggest civilian towers. The other thing I'll, I'll quickly say, on the last night of the war in 2014, the final night after the ceasefire was already imminent, this is when Israel decided to start taking out high-rise towers, the Italian compound, the Albasha Tower, um, one other one, the name skips my mind. Um, and so what I thought at the time is this is specifically targeting kind of the you know middle upper class of Palestinian society in order to uh, make everyone destitute. And it's a message that when the next war resumes, basically when the next Israeli assault happens, that this is exactly where it will pick off. It, it will pick up. Right. This was the message being sent to Palestinians. Um, if you dare resist, then we will wipe out your skyline. And this is exactly what's happening. As soon as the attack started this time, it was hitting the biggest towers. Um, and so, and it's been several of them. So um, Israel's just using the most advanced weaponry provided by the United States um, with total impunity and diplomatic cover to target specifically exclusively civilian targets. Absolutely. And we're watching all of this again on live TV. And, uh, you know, I've, I kind of nicknamed Joe Biden sleepy Jim Crow Joe Biden <laughs> because he really is um, the full package of just someone who just like Obama uh, stood up very strong in support of Israel no matter how uh, atrocious the Israeli government uh, is but then again it's you know Israel's just a proxy of the United States and of the military industrial complex um, is a uh, Miko you are now in Jerusalem you just arrived yesterday um, could you give us a feeling uh, of what the atmosphere has been like since the attacks on Al-Aqsa and, you know, Eid just ended for, for Muslims in Palestine? And so what is the feeling like now, considering what's happening in Gaza and what has happened in Sheikh Jarrah and Al-Aqsa? What are you seeing? Uh-oh, we can't hear Miko. You're muted, Miko. We can't hear you. No? Yeah. Let's see here. It looks like Miko's internet is very, very low. I'm getting that notification. His, it looks good to me, but we can't hear him. <laughs> Let me remove him and then add him really quick. Oops. Nope. Nothing, Miko. Why is this not working? Maybe, um, if I can, I'm trying I can to talk. I can't hear Miko. Didn't we just hear him when we were like talking? Or no? Yeah, we were talking before we started and we had him. Can't hear you, Miko. I don't know what's going on. Um, I have you on full volume here. Miko, maybe if you, volume. maybe, did you exit and come back? You want to try that? Give us a thumbs up if you can hear us, Miko. He says he's not muted. Okay. But he can't. Can you hear? Um, 
I'll tell you what, while, while we handle the technical difficulties with Miko, maybe I'll, I can talk a little bit about um, what's going on inside, inside Israeli society a little bit based, you know, yeah, based on my observations. Yeah, definitely. We want to know what's happening um, in Jerusalem. Go ahead, Dan. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the key things for people to understand is how uh, this, you know, even started. Like, why did this, you know, operation, whatever, Guardians of the Walls, whatever they call it. Why is this mass slaughter taking place right now? Um, and I think a lot of it actually comes back to, you know, it's it's a little bit arbitrary of a, of a starting point. But this is Benjamin Netanyahu's way of protecting his political career in a way um right. he's as everyone knows been uh he's had these massive corruption scandals for the past few years mounting ranging you know from um Good. hey we yeah. got him there right, can back. you hear me can, can you hear me we got you loud and clear all right uh, okay guys we're gonna get back to you dan can we get nico i know nico yeah, yeah, have please, a lot of time today. nico tell us how are things in jerusalem Okay, well, you know, I think my journey here is a testament to what is happening. I mean, I arrived actually yeah. a couple of hours ago, just a few hours ago. Uh, and the reason is that the Tel, the, uh, Tel Aviv airport is closed. And it's been closed for seven days, and it's or several days, and it's going to be closed for several more days, so there are no flights coming in. So I ended up having to fly to Amman, Jordan, and then a crossing over from Jordan. Um, so, I mean, the fact that the airport of this country is closed for several days and is going to be closed for several days more, and really nobody knows for how long, is a testament to what is happening here. Also, I think the fact that um, even the flight route coming here from coming going to Amman from Istanbul had to be changed. They had, they had to reroute it because they can't fly over the airspace here, so they had to go further south, and the flight was extended by about a half hour. So this is impacting a lot of people. Um, a good friend of mine, Palestinian friend of mine from Nakab, uh, spent three days in the Shabak interrogation rooms, being interrogated. He's a citizen of Israel. In the north, in uh, in Kalansawe, in all the Palestinian towns uh, where Israeli citizens reside, there is massive protests and shooting every night. Uh, these towns are closed. There's no access. They're blocked. Um, the rockets that fell around Jerusalem fell right around where I am right now and there is some significance to it because it's right it's not they fell in the fields but they fell in the fields in an area that includes uh, or not far from the Kastel which is historically significant that's where Abdelkader Husseini was killed in 1948 it's very close to Sataf which is a, a, a village that was uh, um, emptied in 1948, and it's actually maybe just maybe a, a couple kilometers away from Diriasin. So, so this is there's a lot of significance to this area just outside Jerusalem, where these rockets have fallen only you know a few days ago. And they're still not really clear what is happening. Um, East Jerusalem is blocked. Um, there's massive amounts of forces, massive amounts of of, uh, of police in East Jerusalem, and all of the cities that they call the um, they like to call them the mixed cities. These are Palestinian cities like Lid and Ramle, Yaffa, Haifa. Um, you know, Lid and Ramle, really the Palestinians live in ghettos. I mean, there was, we all know that there was a massive campaign of ethnic cleansing in 1948, massacres, and there was a small community that remained, and they live in, in really in terrible conditions, terrible ghettos. 
Um, and they, you know, they stood up. Um, so I think, I think all of these things point to, um, point to the success of, of the, of the Palestinian struggle. Um, the airport's closed, which means the country's closed. Um, rockets are falling nearby Jerusalem and in places that are heavily populated, but very significantly, so significant places. Um, and, um, it's interesting what Dan was talking about this uh, trick that Israel played, supposedly played on the Palestinians. The way it was played in the Israeli press is a huge success. They said, aha, look, we tricked them. The IDF is back. The IDF is, and its intelligence are back. They managed to outsmart these, uh, Hamas and the other, you know, so-called, what they call terrorist groups. And we managed to kill so many of them and destroy their infrastructure because this trick, um, worked well uh, i guess it didn't work but they're not going to admit that um and then the other aspect of this which is really what i think uh in many ways was uh was what triggered this current uprising is netanyahu's desire to stay in power and to dismantle any efforts to uh put together a government without him and he succeeded so there's that the the, the negotiations for a, a non-netanyahu government collapsed Benny Gantz, who's the defense minister, who was Netanyahu's really main nemesis from for a long time, and Netanyahu are now you know back together again. They love each other. They're, I mean, nothing nothing binds people like bloodshed, I suppose, like massacres. And so now they're working together, and it's clear that this Netanyahu government, Netanyahu is going to remain as prime minister, and he's probably going to have a pretty broad coalition that includes some of the most dangerous. Uh, elements of Israeli political map, and you mentioned an oxide. And I think it's important. I mean, we all remember, we all saw these images of these crazed Israeli youth dancing in the plaza in front of the Western Wall as flames were up in the Alexa compound. And um, although maybe not a lot of people want to talk about this, I know Dan knows a lot about this because he's working on a documentary about this. But the people of that there, there is a, there's a there's a very solid movement among Israeli society, which used to be religious, and now it's expanded to non-religious um, groups as well, which wants to see the destruction of Al-Aqsa and the building of some structure which they call a temple. And one of the people who's the leader, one of the leaders of this group, is Jerusalem is the is the minister for Jerusalem affairs in the Netanyahu government, Rafi Peretz. And as we're going to see others like other other of these, you know, people like him join the coalition, an, up, an incoming coalition, I think uh, the danger for Al-Aqsa is imminent. The danger for Jerusalem as we know it is imminent. And the danger for Palestinians who live between what they call the greater Jerusalem area, which begins in Ramallah in the north and goes all the way to Bethlehem in the south, with this structure that they believe that they call a temple will be in the center. Any Palestinian who's the Palestinians who live within this area, um, the danger of their uh, expulsion is imminent. So I think we need to take this very, very seriously. And Dan, I would like you, if you will, since you are working on this documentary and you've been covering the more right wing extremist aspects of um, these groups of people that are trying to destroy Al Aqsa, can you tell us a little bit more about um, the plans with that? Right. So there is a very powerful movement um, that's kind of in the center of Israeli politics and has broad support in Israeli society. Uh, it has entered the mainstream for 
you know, several, several years, even a couple decades, you could say, um, that seeks nothing less than the total destruction of the Aloxa compound. And as Miko explained to build, um, yeah, what they, what they say is a, is a third temple, um, on, on this site, um, which would basically, you know, they're, they're essentially trying to recreate some mythological past, uh, from thousands of years ago. Um, and basically since the 1970s, this, this has been around since the early days of Zionism, really since like the 1920s. Um, but it was very kind of, you know, small and, and in the, in the, in the far right, and really, after 1967, when there was the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza and, and East Jerusalem and the holy sites, there was this kind of messianic uh, air that Zionism breathed in um, that, uh, awoke in, that awoke religious Zionism from uh, a slumber. And religious Zionism is this idea that God... Um, that the state of Israel is a, is a holy endeavor. It's a holy being and everything it does, it's wars, it's conquests, uh, the bullets, the soldiers fire, you know, the, the uniforms they wear are all holy. And so what's happened um, as it expands, as this state expanded, this idea grew. Now, when the, the, the irony is that what actually made this group more powerful to the point that it is today is it's the peace process, what has been called the peace process, because with this Absolutely. idea that the state um, expanding uh, and, you know, becoming this mythical kingdom, mythological kingdom, as that happens, then, well, then when it reverses, so with the uh, the withdrawal from the Sinai Desert and, and, and normalization with, um, with, with Egypt, uh, that inspired a series of attempted attacks on the Al-Aqsa compound. One, to have the political result of canceling the withdrawal from the Sinai Desert. Um, and also with the idea of we're going to bomb this thing and that will like shock the Israeli public consciousness and everyone will want this, you know, messianic era where we slaughter animals and wipe their blood around in order to worship God. Um, and so that inspired all these attacks in the 80s. And then in the 90s, of course, you have the Oslo process which was even more of a shock because that wasn't just about the Sinai that's handing over, you know, so-called Jewish sovereignty, um, uh, creating the Palestinian authority and creating these little kind of, um, tiny pieces of land where Palestinians have like semi autonomy in the West bank in like what, you know, Zionists, especially religious Zionists consider the heartland, the biblical heartland. And then, so that makes it even more mainstream. And so you have more Israelis, uh, in religious Zionism, especially, um, gravitating from instead of we'll just settle land and have you know settlements and colonies, more to we need to go directly to the end game of the most important site um, and con and conquer that. And then the Gaza withdrawal, uh, you know, which wasn't so much really a withdrawal, but this um, you know what they call the disengagement, where they withdrew the colonies but put Gaza under this brutal siege. This was another major shock. This was e even more of a shock for the settlers. And so after that, you have this process which has gone on and on under the tutelage of Be Benjamin Netanyahu um, for his own political career, his political advance to bring in, to empower this movement of uh, settlers and, and, and not only religious Zionists, but as Miko said, also secular 
Zionists who who don't even care about the religious aspect, that you know the the theological aspect, but simply um, see the Al-Aqsa compound is something to be conquered because this is what Zionism is about. It has to be conquering all the time. Um, and this is the most important site and they know it. And so there are, you know, secular Israelis, there are secular group, ostensibly secular, um, that insist that, that uh, desire to go destroy the Al-Aqsa compound. Um, and so that's one of the things my documentary shows. And so this is, you know these these settlers under um, with with Itamar Ben Gvir, who I think was mentioned. This um, ultra, uh, he wasn't mentioned. This ultra right wing Kahanist um, member of Knesset. He's now a member of Knesset because of Benjamin Netanyahu bringing these uh, fanatics in to protect his own uh, to protect himself from his own corruption scandals. With uh, Itamar Ben Gvir and figures like him in the Knesset. The ultra-right, which is all about destroying the Al-Aqsa Mosque, has been empowered. And so that, uh, uh, with with the ethnic cleansing going, in, going on in Sheikh Jarrah, that kind of echoed into Al-Aqsa. The, the state, the occupation forces, cracked down on Palestinian demonstrations at Al-Aqsa. And then um, the armed groups in, in Gaza launched rockets in response to that. And that provides the pretext for this major attack on Gaza. So it so Al-Aqsa plays wow. a central role not only in the in the entire um conquest and you know I, I hate to use the term conflict but but what is happening oh. in the country and everything kind of revolves around it in so many ways. Netanyahu knows that he can whenever he wants to create violence to generate violence the thing to do is let the settler fanatics go crazy at Al-Aqsa. That's the way to do it. Well, and a lot of this ideology, I mean, you can see it with these like WhatsApp groups that these Israeli youth are a part of, um, where they're sending each other messages and planning out uh, massacres, massacres of Palestinians. Um, and they're going you know, door to door in Palestinian towns um, with their knives, with weapons, they're armed, they're attacking Palestinian men, women, and children. I saw a video of um, of these two Israelis throwing Molotov cocktails into a home and they ended up really burning uh, two small children. And so it's just such a sick way of thinking that you know you have a religious right to this land, but then you're also acting in ways that's so violent. And in no way does uh, Judaism or true Judaism, you know, <laughs> advocate for that at all. And so it's really, really disturbing. Um, and Malak, you know, you as a Palestinian in Gaza have witnessed such horrors as a Palestinian. You have witnessed uh, so much trauma. You have witnessed children uh, being pulled out of rubble. I, you know, I think from a previous interview had mentioned that you have lost several family members and friends and colleagues and school members and and yet here you are as a witness, as a testimony to uh, Palestinian lives and the hope that Palestinians have because you um, spent much of your time in 2014 and you discovered your, you know, your artistic talents, which is so incredible. Um, are you seeing a lot of similarities between the attacks in 2014 and the one today? And how is it specifically affecting the youth? I know me and Dan were just talking about there's like a there's a suicide pandemic among the youth in Gaza because there's just there's just no there's just no hope. Everything is being destroyed. Talk about the youth and how it's affecting them. 
Well, um, like seeing, like being a witness of, of this war, it feels like a, a horror movie. Like sometimes I just, when I see the destruction and, and the huge destruction that happens in the places that I was in just a few days ago, it makes me feel that is this really Gaza or not? Because of like, it, it's a huge, it's a huge something that I cannot really put on words, but uh, it's the whole generation is getting traumatized. My sister is only 10 years old and, you know, she's shaking all the time. She's struggling having a, a sleep because every time she attempts to sleep, another bombing that shakes the house like happens. So, as I said, I'm 21 and I have not yet survived the trauma of 2014. I saw my neighbors getting pulled off uh, the rebels uh, just like a few years ago. So imagine growing up with people, knowing them, and then finding them in pieces under the rubble. And I'm sorry for using such graphic uh, words. Um, so I will tell you like more in depth how now I, I see uh, the things I do. I really doubt uh, the worth of, a, of, of a humanity and of my worth. Because now if I, I get killed, who is going to be accountable? Life will go on, more people get killed, and nothing will change. So this whole idea that you are your blood is is too cheap and you can be killed although like you did absolutely nothing so as many people who killed is damaging for the self-worth is damaging damaging for the psychology um i i didn't sleep well for the past six days but looking at my family they are shaking although the house would not be shaking because of you know like they, like their body gets used to to this shaking so it's like it takes years now if, if Gaza needs help, if it survived what is going on, we really need mental health expertise to, to, to treat 2 million people and over 2 million people. I mean, seeing children who witness these huge bombings that are really loud, that are really destructive, and these children losing their families. I mean, just a few days ago, one kid that was the only survivor of his family. He's only three months. So imagine growing up without any family and what the world will ever say to this person. So it's like, it's it's a crisis against everything, against the humanity, against um, all these moral concepts. And uh, I don't really see any way out of it. I really hope it will end, but even if it ends any soon, there is a huge destruction that happened and will take years to repair. Uh, the infrastructure is now getting damaged. I only have four hours of electricity. And sometimes it can go one day without any electricity. So what is really like the thing that I get, I get messages from people saying, it's your fault for not having shelters. But seeing the destruction that gets deep in the roads of that leads to a Shifa hospital, to main hospitals, that plans the emergency, like the, like the ambulance, to getting into injured people, not even metal shelters will help the Gazans. They will also be destroyed because of, as Dan said, sophisticated and very, very advanced weapons that are being used. They are really destructive. So we have no shelters and we have a place to go. So when someone tells me, stay safe, and I just respond, where? There is no place that is safe. It's either home or the street and neither is safe. So, I mean, another thing that is not talked about and it's not confirmed but i've been and my family is smelling a weird smell every time there's a 
I've heard it's people posting sexy. about that. Can you tell us what it smells like? It's it's like really toxic and it's really powerful. And it's something that you cannot really inhale. And even there are people who are advising to wear masks while we are at home. So I don't really know whether it's, whether it's phosphorus, whether it's tear gas, whether it's really, as I said, I'm not really an expert in these weapons, but the smell keeps coming in waves and goes and comes. So, um, yeah, as I said, it's a horror movie. This is the least I can do about it. Well, when we, when we talk about like Avzmov's, um, you know, hierarchy of needs, shelter, food, water, you know, all of these things, Israel has completely decimated all of these uh, four Palestinians. And so they're <clears throat> there surviving, but they're dead. They're born dead. Does that make sense? They're born dead. Just imagine that. You're yeah. born dead. You don't have access to clean water. You don't have access to a safe home. You don't have access to family and schools. I mean, I, I saw a report that said that there's only two schools left in Gaza. Um, and Israel is now threatening to bomb those two schools. And so we have now uh, Joe Biden. He just approved a over a $700 million uh, arms deal uh, with, with Israel like today, which is like the biggest slap in the face to Palestinians and any sort of human rights. I mean, Dan, you, you said, that I actually used this in my speech the other day, Dan, at the Nakba rally, you know, you mentioned that when Joe Biden and his team came in and said, we're bringing back human rights, that was like a direct threat. Because what human rights? <laughs> we're witnessing a huge human rights violation right now um, in Gaza. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, the international scene uh, Miko, um, you know, you've covered Israel's so-called, and so have you, Dan, Israel's so-called, you know, uh, peace deals or normalization deals with countries like, you know, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Sudan. Joe Biden, on top of his, you know, just came out yesterday um, and spoke for like 30 seconds, and all he could muster up was, I'm working with our allies in the Middle East, and he specifically named Israel. Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Egypt um, as the ones that he's working with to uh, figure out a solution to this, you know, conflict. Yet those are the same countries that the United States is working with to commit a total genocide in Yemen, uh, where 23 million people are, are starving. It's a, a completely man-made uh, genocide taking place there. And so, Miko, could you enlighten us? I guess <laughs> if you could. Um, on the response from the international community about what's you know about what's happening and specifically this normalization with these Arab countries and what does it all mean for Palestinians? You know, it's impossible to imagine uh, existing in the conditions that uh, Malek was describing, um, and I think what makes it even worse. I am about a 45 minute drive from her, maybe yeah. 50 minute drive from Gaza. The lights are on, the water's flowing. Kids know that, oh yeah, if there's a siren, we've got to run into this other room, you know, in the house. And, but it's kind of casual. There's no real sense of, you know, danger. It's just something we need to do. Um, and this is true here in Jerusalem. It's true even closer. It's true throughout the settlements and the Nakab settlements that are five minutes away, 10 minutes away from Gaza. You know, there's no real urgency. There's no, there's no lack of anything. Um, and so in a way, I think that that is even more cynical, just shows how horrendously cynical 
and cruel Israeli society and the state of Israel really are. And, you know, as for Joe Biden and the support for this, I mean, he declared himself a Zionist, for God's sake. Right. So, of course, he's going to support this because this is what Zion, this is the what materialization of Zionism. What is happening in Gaza now with this horror that Malak is living through and described and two million people, again, a 45-minute drive from me are just living is precisely what Zionism prescribed. So if you're a Zionist, you're going to support it. Why not give them millions of dollars that are going to come back anyway in a, you know, in a, it's a, to, to the war industry, um, to the weapons industry. So why not do this? I mean, when people are surprised that Joe Biden does what he does or any American president for that matter, they're forgetting that America is a Zionist enterprise. America is a Zionist state. They've supported Zionism openly, freely, and even proudly. And so this is what Zionism is. It's murder, it's slaughter, it's massacre, it's displacement, it's cruelty to a point that is almost hard to believe people are capable of and for, and, and for so long. Now, you may have seen this, the French uh, interior minister announced that he wants to ban all pro-Palestinian protests in Paris. Uh, Angela Merkel announced that what the Palestinians are doing the Palestinian resistance and the Palestinians' attempt to defend themselves from Gaza is terrorism. So, I mean, where you know the, the British, of course, are you know have been are Zionists. So, I mean, the EU is is uh, also completely and totally uh, Zionist. And again, when somebody says they're a Zionist, this is what they support. There's it's nothing less horrifying than this. This is what Zionism is. This is what they support. And that's where the international community is. And like you said, of course, these, these regimes are America's best allies. These are the regimes that are executing. And really, these are all regimes that are executing Zionist foreign policy. The United States has a Zionist foreign policy. And all these other regimes play a part in this as perhaps some more as puppets and some more active. But that's what we're seeing here. And the fact that this, is, this, is, this can go on for so long, and I mean... You know, people usually talk about the Gaza, uh, the Gaza Strip since 2008. But really, attempts and massacres inside the Gaza Strip by Israel began as soon as the Gaza Strip was established in the 1950s. This is nothing new. It's just more, the technology is improved, the weapons are improved. Um, but this is something that's been going on for decades and decades, and, the, and people just allow this to continue. So I think it's severe. I think it does point to one thing, though. And that is just how important it is for people like ourselves and, and the people around us who, who believe the way we do and think the way they, we do and speak the way we do to broaden the circle, to support right. the Palestinian cause, to be absolutely, absolutely very, very clear uh, that there should be zero tolerance for Zionism anywhere, that there should be zero tolerance for the Zionist voice anywhere, that there is no room for dialogue, there is no room for discussion here. It is a racist, supremacist, violent ideology, and anybody who supports it in any way, shape, or form has no room at the table. They need to be ousted. They need to be kicked out. They shouldn't be invited to all these, you know, talk shows and, and interviews everywhere on, on the corporate in the in the corporate media. I don't know why people listen to them and the things that they spew, this nonsense, these lies. I think it's really important, the work that we do, and to, ex to expand the work that we do in a way that has far more uh, reach than it does right now. 
Well, and you're absolutely right. And that's why it's so important for everybody who's watching this live stream. I'm just going to remind everyone again, if you haven't shared it, please do on your personal pages. If you manage any pages, please share this live stream. This is an urgent uh, panel discussion about the Israel massacre in Gaza. Um, and Dan, you know, you, I mean, <laughs> could you talk about, um, could you talk just, to us? About, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Could you talk to us about, you know, me and you were discussing this this morning, where do you see this crisis heading towards? You know, I was at the Nakba rally. I saw young people really hopeful that the United States was going to end U.S. aid to Israel. And I was the bearer of bad news, unfortunately. I said, you know, as long as U.S. imperialism is reigning the world right now, there will be no justice for Palestinians or any oppressed people around the world. What do you think, Dan? I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I can't speculate, right? You know, it's just impossible to know how long at least uh, this this mega assault will go on. Um, but it's it's clear that, you know, it's not uh, it's not starting in any kind of incremental way. It's just a, a, the most massive punishing assault from the very beginning. Um, and the way that Israel is bombing is, um, you know, it doesn't even look like it's, you know, trying to prepare for some ground invasion where it would, you know, usually, usually kind of, you know, bomb the the outer areas to, you know, what they call soften, soften up uh, the terrain. Um, it's hitting, as Malik described, the Al-Ramal Street, the center of Gaza City. This is like the kind of commercial residential center. This is like the, you know, where everyone goes. This is the center of it all. Um, and it's, it's you know, I think the, the Palestinian Ministry of Health was bombed um, and is now severely damaged. There was a medical clinic bombed today. Um, I mean, it's really just targeting the, the softest targets possible. Um, you know... When I look at the Biden administration, I mean, of course, Joe Biden was president in 2014 when when this, when, you know, that mega assault happened that killed 2,251 Palestinians, and including 551 children. And when Israel ran out of bombs in the middle of it, what did the Obama administration do? It said, well, we have a we have a, a weapons cache stashed in Israel. So you just tap into that. It resupplied them. Just like today, the Biden administration uh, resupplied. Um, one thing I noticed, and, and I, and I, I said this on Twitter that, um, this, uh, uh, weapons package that the Biden administration just approved was actually proposed, um, several days before this attack began. So that suggests to me that this was planned out ahead of time that the U S knew that Israel was going to need some more bombs because it was going to run low real quick. Um, and of course, the Biden administration happily uh, supplied those. So what kind of uh, coordination is there between Israel and the United States to plan a massive assault on the civilian infrastructure and people of the Gaza Strip? Um, uh, you know, another thing to look at is when the the uh, Al-Jala Tower was bombed, which is where AP and, and Al Jazeera had its um, headquarters, as well as, you know, numerous families lived in there. Actually, during my time in Gaza, um, I, I spent uh, quite a while living there. Um, I, that's, that's a building I lived in for a few months. Um, 
that building, the Israelis bombed and said this was, you know, there was some like Hamas intelligence operating out of there, which of course, and there was no proof provided. Um, not that, you know, frankly, it matters because when I consider Hamas is a, is a political party, it's the ruling political party, no matter what you think of its politics. And so to say that it just, that, that Hamas having some kind of existence in this uh, building justifies destroying the entire thing or attacking it at all is to me is a can of saying, well, um, it would be uh, acceptable for Al Qaeda to attack the twin towers because there were Republicans uh, in there on nine 11, you know, just because a political party you don't like is there doesn't mean you can attack a civilian target um, and just use, you know, the, the T word say terrorist and you can bomb anything. Um, and so actually the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, said that Israel actually didn't provide any evidence of that, that he hasn't seen any evidence of that, even though the Israeli government said they gave the U.S. evidence. So the U.S. exposed Israel in a lie um, and then provided it, proceeded to give it a bunch of weapons anyway. So it's like, well, you lied to us, but here's a bunch more weapons to go and do it again. So that just speaks to the level of impunity um, and really control the United States has given Israel where the United States has all of the leverage that if it wanted to stop this slaughter in the name of human rights, as Joe Biden said, it would snap its fingers and it would be done. But the United States is happy to see this happen for whatever reason, because um, Israel has basically controls Congress and the executive branch. Um, and I'm sure for some in, in the U.S. government, they see this you know, as some kind of proxy battle between Iran. So they see... Uh, targeting, you know, the civilians of Gaza suffering so greatly uh, is some kind of weakening of Iran or something like that. This is the same excuse they use for the genocide of Yemen. Um, so, I mean, it's just, you know, I just have no words for how reprehensible this is. And and sadly, it's hard to see, you know, I, you know, I don't want to say it's, it's just hard to predict. I mean, there is really, I think one thing that's different about this time is that there's this uprising going on um in the region um inside you know inside israel itself in 1948 palestine in you know the so-called mixed cities where the palestinians remain who have not been ethnically cleansed israel's basically been forced to deploy uh military into lid um and this is pretty unprecedented i mean you know the palestinians inside israel have generally you know, been taking a much more passive approach. Um, and, you know, to see this kind of uprising really says a lot. And there's also been major demonstrations from Jordan where they managed Palestinians in Jordan, managed to cross into the occupied West Bank and be inside Palestine. And then there were demonstrations on the Lebanese border. So, you know, this is not staying in Gaza um, as previous, you know, mass slaughters have. There's, it's definitely, I think, shaken Israel um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, more, I mean, it's, we, I feel like we say this every time this happens, but you know, there's definitely, you can see the, the massive rallies around the world that are unprecedented. I mean, the rallies here in Washington, DC have just been absolutely gigantic around the country, um, around the world. So, you know, it's, it's really just so hard to say where things can go. Um, but all of this in the context of, the decline of the U.S. empire. And we have to understand Palestine not only 
as um, an issue of human rights. But as you know, Miko explained so well, this is an issue of imperialism. And um, as long as, you you know, that the U.S., we have this United States super empire uh, that reigns over so much of the world, then Israel is going to have this this total impunity. Um, And so there needs to be, you know, another another power to come in and act as an actual arbiter. And, uh, uh, and, you know, I mean, I look at, you know, countries like China and Russia that have actually put forth ceasefire resolutions in the United States and in the UN Security Council. And the the U.S. has used its veto power to block three ceasefire resolutions. Three times it's done this. So we see, you know, what the role of the U.S. is to continue the slaughter, use all of its diplomatic leverage to continue the slaughter versus the other powers in the world that want some kind of ceasefire so there can be some kind of political resolution, even if, you know, they, not everyone agrees what that is. Dan, you explained that so so eloquently and so thoroughly. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for describing that. Um, and it's been quite incredible to see the solidarity for Palestine around the world. Um, I think it was like 25,000 people came out in LA, over 25,000 people came out in Chicago, over 25, that's a lot of people, 25,000 people is a lot of people. <laughs> 25,000 people in New York. We have celebrities now speaking up in solidarity with Palestinians. Um, and there's like there's a there's a petition um, in the UK right now. And if it reaches, I believe, over 300,000, it has to be addressed and debated, um, you know, on the their political floor. And so there's a lot of solidarity for Palestinians. Um, Malak, I'm curious to know, does that give Palestinians in Gaza any sort of hope that things could change? Does it even mean anything for Palestinians in Gaza who are living, like you said, they're living in a horror movie? Um, that's a good question. Of course, like seeing and even like people from everywhere, they sent me uh, photos of uh, the demonstrations and even people in France see, saying that uh, it's banned, but we have to, we had to go and demonstrate demonstrate so seeing this of course makes us feel seen and heard and makes us feel that there might be uh, a pressure on the governments to finally take an immediate or or firm action against the crimes that is committed in the gaza strip Uh, but now like personally i I do not have any faith in the world like i I still see the first time I thought that the world is ugly it was when I was eight years old. And when I lost my classmates and learned the whole words of wars and occupation and murders and, and siege and all these in such young age. And then going to Istanbul, seeing that the world is, is different and then people actually sleep without fearing the death and then without having drones all the time flying over their heads, not, not giving this peacefulness to sleep. It was a whole different reality. So comparing these two different places, it makes me realize that the injustice that is going in Gaza is unbearable. So, and, and seeing that even the US didn't condemn the murder of the nine children that were killed in the first day, like what is else left for me to be helpful about? It's just like a, a slap in the face, but it's still, it's not surprised because as you said, Biden has been friends with Israel for 40, 45 years. So, um, like for me to repair this hope and, and to have this faith, it might take a lifetime because seeing all the injustices and seeing all the murders 
that are happening around me of people that I have seen and people that I have might even studied with, it just makes me feel that it's it's like, uh, what is the point of, of living or even surviving? So I, I just, like now my family is staying in one living room, so I have to sneak in one place. So you, you might imagine that we stay together in one room, so it's either we survive or we don't, together. So you might just imagine how close we feel death is coming, how close we feel that we are anytime we could be killed and we are just numbers. We are just numbers that you see in the screen. And that's why I'll try my best, although I do not really have enough art supplies, I want to shout to people that we are not numbers. We are actually people. We feel sad, we feel happy, we have, we celebrate, although it, 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 it can be shit sometimes, I'm sorry for using these words, but we are people and people do not seem to, to, to give, to give, you know, like to give a shit about, about the numbers increasing, about the numbers of injured people. So like, it, it's really like a, like a situation is it's really beyond what I can say, but like even the, the places that I felt were beautiful in the Gaza Strip are now, becoming part of, of the occupation. Uh, I love, I live near the sea and I live in, in the neighborhood uh, that is the life of the Gaza Strip. And even the sea is an enemy. Now we are having bombings fired from the sea. And sometimes because I live few, just like three minutes away from the sea, the firing that comes from the gunboats are explosions. They make the house shake, they give the sounds. It's not only like just one sound of bombing, it keeps going and going. So it feels like it's a series of like sounds that are not stopping. So I don't see it. I, I don't really know how, well, how I will ever view Gaza with all these mass destruction. I don't know if this means the eraser of Gaza. So it's, it's really, this is what I have to say. But I, of course, I really deeply appreciate and thank everyone who's demonstrating although it's a pandemic and going out and going into crowds is difficult but i do appreciate you make us feel seen and heard so you make us feel that it might change at some point so really like a big thanks to everyone who's doing Absolutely. And you know, you mentioned something that's so important is that we have to humanize the Palestinian people. We have to humanize the Palestinian man, the Palestinian woman, mm -hmm. Palestinian youth, the Palestinian babies. I cannot, you know, I lived under Israeli occupation and um, apartheid for a very brief three years. And it's obviously just nothing compared to what the people in Gaza and the things that you have witnessed and seen. But I got a glimpse those three years that I lived under occupation and, and apartheid that affected me so much. It basically molded the person that I became today. But when I came back to the United States, it was the media that was constantly portraying Palestinian men as militant, as angry, as, you know, controlling of women. Uh, they always showed images of women fully covered. They could not speak for themselves. They showed the children angry, screaming, you know, being trained to be militants, all these things that are absolutely not true. And so what's so amazing are these videos that are coming out of Gaza showing just, you know, these fathers, who are so gentle, who are so loving to their children, just protecting them. I seriously feel like I'm about to cry because it's it's so hard to watch these videos. You know, I'm a parent. I know it's like you guys are all parents yeah. too. But, like, but it's so incredible to see just the humanity that exists in Gaza where the media, you know, paints them to be so violent and brutal and militant. 
yet these videos of the, the mothers that are just literally just coddling their little babies and their daughters and just trying to protect them. The fathers who are so gentle, just trying to make their daughters laugh and smile in the midst of bombing. It's just so yeah. heart-wrenching. It's so heart-wrenching. Yeah. And, and can I add one? Uh, I'm sorry. No, no, go saying, ahead. Surviving a war is one thing and getting used to it is another. Yes. I mean, my sister, she's only 10. Uh, at the beginning, like, she's having a dysfunctional nerve system. So at the beginning, when she hears the sound of bombing and or, or she's shaking because of the house, there comes a time where the bombing would be happening just two blocks away and she wouldn't even move and it's beside like the window. So sometimes when we have bombings, we just run from the windows. So I was seeing her, we were all running instead of, except for her. She was staying where she is and everyone was moving, everyone was running. And we asked her like, move, like just go, come with us. She said, I don't care, I'm used to it. So imagine a 10 year old child getting used to the sound of the most terrifying sounds that any child would ever hear. Here. So it's, it's like, it's a crime against children and crime against all people of Gaza. So yeah, that's, that's what I have. Absolutely. Um, we're going to wrap up uh, the panel here. I, I just want to end with Miko. Um, you know, Miko, you've been a staunch advocate for BDS. Uh, we have some politicians that won't stand behind BDS like uh, Bernie Sanders, although we do appreciate his recent statements about, um, you know, the massacre that Israel is committing against Gaza. I don't, I personally don't think it goes far enough because he's still advocating for a two-state solution. He's still advocating that Israel has a right to defend itself, all of those uh, typical talking points. But BDS is so important right now. It's so, so important to support. Um, can you give us a very brief history uh, about why BDS was successful in South Africa and why and how it's connected to uh, Israel and Palestine? Well, I think the cowardice of American politicians and European politicians and all the uh, all the garbage that is spewed by Israelis and Zionists throughout the world against BDS is is uh, in a way a testament to its potential, um, because the the those who are old enough to remember remember, and those who are you know educated enough know um, that. Towards the end, you know, throughout the '80s and you know the last the last years of apartheid, if you were a South if you had a South African passport, you could not visit any country. If you were a South African athlete, you could not participate in any sporting events. If you were a South African academic, musician, you name it, a South African of any field, a scientist, you could not visit any country. You could not collaborate with any country, with anyone. If you did, that person would be penalized. In other words, a country that would host a South African team would be penalized for hosting that South African team. And people know that that is exactly what brought South African apartheid to its knees. Now, it's about bringing people to their knees. That's what it's about. It's not just about not buying avocados or dates, which is important. It's about making sure that no Israeli politician has a moment of rest. Right. That no Israeli politician or Israeli um, military person or Israeli representative, whether it's in politics, in culture, in music, in academic, in any field whatsoever, can feel welcome anywhere. 
politicians, the diplomats that reside here, that represent their countries here, need to lock up their offices and leave. You know, in, in Washington, D.C., there hasn't been a mission. Really, the mission closed in 2017. The building where the mission sat, sat still has a Palestinian flag on it. It's in tatters. You know, it's in tatters. That should be the case of every Israeli diplomatic mission, every Israeli uh, economic mission, uh, military, you name it. That should be the case. They should know that they have nowhere to go. They need to be brought to their knees. You know, right now, Israelis, you know, they're a little uncomfortable. They can't fly anywhere. They can't go to Greece. They can't go to Cyprus. They can't go on vacations. Oh, my God, they can't go to Europe. You know, things like that. It's not the end of the world. They need to be at a point where they're not welcome anywhere. Anywhere. That's what BDS is about. There needs to be sanctions to the point that their Israeli economy collapses. There has to be a point where the, the Sixth Fleet, which is right here in the Mediterranean, comes in and makes sure that the people of Gaza are safe and receive medical help that they need. That there's a no-fly zone. That is the reality we need to, that, that's the reality that we need to fight for. Now, with the Zionists know, and I don't want to take too much of the time, I know you, fin- you want to finish, is that all politics, and they've learned this a long time ago, that all politics is local. That's what okay. every, every, everyone who runs for board of education, for city council, for slate, state legislature, and of course for national office, needs to know that if they do not wear a pin like this, they will not be elected. And I think we will get to that point. But we need to move faster. We need to work harder. We need to be much, much more active and I think much more determined and much less accommodating and much less tolerance of the racism, the supremacy, and the violence that Zionism represents. That's what's going to get us there faster. Absolutely. We have to give a huge shout out to the youth on college campuses because I absolutely, feel like absolutely, they're the ones absolutely. who are fighting the hardest. Yes, SJP is all over and, and, and the other yeah. groups, absolutely, 110%. And they are being bullied by pro-Israel yes. groups. They're being bullied by politicians. I mean, yes. politicians are yes. drafting bills to silence these students yeah. um, at SJP or SPJ and, and on college campus, campuses. I can't even talk anymore. <laughs> and the students are winning, by the way. The students are winning. The students they are growing. Are. The groups are growing year after year. You've got new students who join. You see more activities, new activities. I've been on so many Zoom events with, with SGPs, people that I haven't, some I, some I know already, some that are new, colleges that have never had it before. They are winning. They are fighting the very, very difficult fight. I agree with you. Absolutely a shout out to them. It is, it is up to the youth. It is up to the youth 100%, 100% to uh, bring justice to Palestine. And they're Let doing me say a, one a, thing. Sorry Dan, to interrupt you. Say, no, no, I was going to say, Dan, do you want to wrap it up for us? Sure, okay. sure. Final words. <laughs> well, I mean, I just wanna, I just wanna say, um, in in lieu of not being able to get to Gaza at this point, which hopefully I'll be able to, um, I'm I'm gonna be working with Palestinian journalists who are on the ground documenting what's going on, um, and we want to pay them as much as we can. So I'm gonna be um getting footage from them and we'll be putting it out at mint press news and behind the headlines so if anybody any of our um followers want to contribute to that that gets money into the hands of palestinian journalists who are struggling to survive in gaza anyway and are risking their lives to show us what's happening so please uh contribute you know look at contributing 
to us to get to get this uh, absolutely crucial docu- documents of war crimes is really is really you know what these videos that we're going to have coming out are. Uh, Minar, where should if people want to contribute, yeah, where should they do that? There are two places that they can donate. We have a current live GoFundMe campaign. Uh, that's currently live. And then we also have, uh, if you go on our website, if you just hit on our donate page, you can donate and contribute to our project. We are trying to work with, uh, we actually are working with, not trying. We we have found journalists and we, are hi- we have hired them. We are working with them to uh, get live content and raw footage out of Gaza. So that would be really, really appreciative. We are independent media. We need the support of our readers and our viewers. Um, you know, we don't have a billionaire funding our media organization. Um, we do count on about 50% of our proceed of our um, funding does come from our readers. So we need, we rely on you guys to support us. And when it comes to Israel and Palestine and the crisis in Gaza, uh, it is thanks to independent media for amplifying the voice of Palestinians and showing the true horrific uh, face of the Israeli and U.S. military. Uh, machine. So I just want to thank everybody for joining us today. Um, if you haven't already, please continue to share this live stream. It is recorded, so we're going to upload this to our YouTube channel and it's going to be on our website in case you weren't able to join us now. So it will be continuously uh, available. But I just want to give a huge shout out and thank you to our panelists today. Malak um, Matar, she's an artist, um, an activist in Gaza. Uh, Dan Cohen, he is our Washington DC correspondent for Behind the Headlines. And Nico Palad, he's an author, journalist, um, and human rights activist from Jerusalem and a contributor to Mid Press News. And I am your host, Manar Adli, Editor-in-Chief of Mid Press News. Thank you guys all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye.